Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 266 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, a new science fiction movie from Luc Besson, director of Lucy and the Fifth Element. And this will involve spoilers for Valerian, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Aaron Lindsay, who you may remember from our panel on Taboo back in episode 256, our panel on Incorporated back in episode 247, and our panel on Braindead back in episode 239. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. She spent over a decade working for the United Nations in dozens of countries around the world, and she also writes the Villain of the Month feature over at PornoKitch.com. Her latest Bloodbound novel, Bloodsworn, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be back. Then next up, we've got Anthony Ha, who you may remember from our panel on Incorporated back in episode 247, our panel on Star Trek Beyond back in episode 214, and our panel on Black Mirror Season 3 back in episode 227. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, and a chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this great, great film. (laughs) And also joining us today is Zach Chapman, who you may remember from our Listener's Strike Back panel in episode 200. His short fiction appears in Starship Sofa, Futuristica, and Writers of the Future, volume 31 and is forthcoming in Tales to Terrify and Steampunk Universe. He also edited the anthology Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. Zach grew up in rural Texas and currently lives in Austin with his librarian wife, a cat, and a lazy-eyed rescue dog named Dingo. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be back. Yeah. Okay, so before we get to Valerian, I'm just kind of curious what you guys thought of Luke Besson's previous big science fiction movies, Lucy and the Fifth Element. So, Zach, let's start with you and have you just tell us, what did you think of The Fifth Element? Um, The Fifth Element is like a childhood movie for me. Uh, I think I saw it in theaters. I was probably like seven or eight. So I really love that movie. Uh, It's like like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or like Mortal Kombat. It's kind of like I was in a stage where I was very impressionable and it's just very vibrant and full of fun performances and Bruce Willis is in his prime before he became like a cranky old man. And uh, Gary Oldman is like chewing scenery, like a crazy person. It's amazing. So I really love that movie. Um, I love the uh, Chris Tucker is amazing too. Like he's chewing scenery more than uh, <laughs> Gary Oldman. So yeah, I really, uh, I love that film. Do you have any criticisms of it at all? Uh, yes. I mean, there. it's probably not a very good movie. Like, um, I mean, Gary Oldman's talking to a flaming death ball. And that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so it it's a movie that I feel like I can't, criticized like very well because it's like holds that place in my heart as like that goofy sci-fi movie that I saw as a kid and, and that I loved. But um yeah, it's like 
I'm I'm not sure if it's a good movie though. I, I know it got very mixed reviews when it came out, and uh, I mean that that's probably fairly accurate. Well, speaking of Gary Oldman speaking to the fiery death ball, when he's doing that, this like sort of black liquid starts running down his forehead. Do you understand what's going on there? Yeah, I think it. I actually think it's blood. I, or I, my understanding is that it's blood and that fiery death ball was making him bleed. I, I thought it was red, but maybe it is just a dark liquid. I don't know, what, do you, what do you other guys think about the, the liquid running down Gary Oldman's forehead when he's talking to the fiery death ball? I just assumed it was blood that like, I think there was maybe something wrong with him too, but, but that fundamentally it was just that talking to a fiery death ball is not healthy. And this is just one, you know, the most, the external sign of it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And and I honestly, I didn't even think about it until right at this moment, because one of the things about the fifth element, and I think um, I'll mention it again. And when we start talking about Valerian is this is one of these films you don't maybe want to take too literally. Um, You just kind of go along for the ride. And, and, and I didn't, I didn't really think about it until you asked the question, to be honest. (laughs) Well, let me say, because I saw, I was, I think, a, I was in college or maybe just out of college when I saw The Fifth Element. And I had had this experience in college where I was always getting my friends to go see science fiction movies. They were not science fiction fans. And I would always t- like hype up every movie that came out. And then they were always terrible. And eventually they stopped wanting to go to movies with me. <laughs> and so, but I was always like so... Uh, so desiring of going to a movie that would be serious and smart and intellectual the way that the science fiction books I'd always been reading were. And I was always just really disappointed when the movies came out and they were invariably really silly and campy and didn't take it seriously and so on. So when I first saw The Fifth Element, I was really disappointed just by how kind of silly and campy I perceived it to be. And I also had a really bad headache the first time I watched it. And that's not a movie you want to watch when you've got a headache. It's like really, you know, it's, it's only going to make your headache worse. Um, but then when I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, Tobias Bakel was there. That's where I met him. And he was a big fan of that movie. And he had me, he sort of encouraged me to watch it again. And the second time I watched it, I, I thought, oh, this is a lot better than I remember. And subsequently, I've watched it two or three more times. And actually, I would say now I pretty much love it. Um, mm. But it is for me a movie where you would have to kind of know going in that it's going to be sort of silly and campy. And at least for me, it improves with repeat viewings. Uh, yeah. And maybe, it, I mean, silly and campy, but also kind of surrealist in a way. And, um, and I think this is one of the things that sets it apart. And, and, and one of the things that I liked about Valerian is precisely what you're talking about um, can really bore me with sci-fi. Sometimes I find that sometimes it's too heavy handed for me with particularly uh, the, the moralizing and what I like about, I mean, I liked a lot about the fifth element, but I liked that, that there was so much originality and imagination to Luc Besson's vision. Like it just was not like anything else I had ever seen. And it really didn't take itself too seriously, which isn't to say that it was pure fluff, but that it, it really just was kind of this just really reveling in its own imagination. And I really appreciated that about the fifth element. Well, for me, particularly the alien opera singer, I think is my favorite moment in the in the movie because it's it is different from anything else I've ever seen, and I think it's I think it's beautiful and weird and memorable. 
But you guys yeah, are I, laughing, so maybe you don't agree or Well, I think no, I completely agree. Yeah, but in the way that I think that um which which may again come up during a discussion of Valerian, but where the la- it's like it's funny and over the top, but it's also great and and amazing and and beautiful. It's like they're not mutually exclusive, and I think the Fifth Element is a is a movie that sort of embodies that. I think it balanced those scenes because isn't it? It's it's kind of going back and forth between the opera and like some tense other scenes. Well, it's it's, and it's I felt like with a fight scene, which is kind of a comedic fight scene. It, yeah, mind. and I think that that's like. I feel like that's like a throwback to maybe older action movies. Like, isn't that like a thing in Bond movies where they're like watching an opera and then there's like Bond is like, you know, taking someone out in the meantime. Um, and it's like cutting, it's doing the same thing. Seems like. It's the Godfather for sure. <laughs> right. And, but it's insane. Like it's on like LSD. And so that's cool but that's the thing like it's you're, you're totally right anthony it doesn't take itself too seriously and i really appreciate that to me it's kind of the wes anderson of sci-fi if that makes any sense totally it's of course it's over the top it's completely meant to be over the top it is you know egregious and completely just yeah like i said just kind of reveling in it it it, it does it all with a wink and i totally appreciate that well, and I think also it's a movie that there are the components of it, which is I think the majority, which is the sort of surreal, fun, um, not purely campy, but, but tongue in cheek, um, space opera, which I really like. And then once in a while, it seems like it kind of becomes this more traditional Bruce Willis movie, um, or this sort of like, you know, Chris Tucker kind of doing whatever he wants. And like those parts which start to resemble more like a traditional Hollywood movie are the parts that I like the least. And when it's very much this kind of science, you know, just wild science fiction movie is what I love. Um, I'm just going to throw out my favorite, some my favorite lines from The Fifth Element are, anyone else want to negotiate? Which I guess is one of those more <laughs> typical Bruce Willis things, but I like that a lot. And then, he knows it's a multi-pass. <laughs> I, I love that scene so much. That's interesting because when I think of the fifth element, I almost don't think of dialogue at all. I just think of like images and like just like the cityscapes and Gary Oldman's crazy costume. And like, I almost, I don't think I could remember, remember a single line of dialogue except for love is the fifth element, which is not great. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and in talking about who's great in the film, we've completely overlooked the fifth element. Uh, I, and I think that, that Lilu, so I have no idea how to pronounce Mila, Mia Jovovich, Jovovich, Jovovich. Mila Jovovich. Anyway, she does an amazing job, I think, of, of bringing this incredibly naive, overwhelmed, super powerful being. I think she does a great job at that. It's a tough line to walk. Okay, so everyone pretty much likes the fifth element, right? That's interesting because as Zach was saying, it kind of gets mixed. I feel like it's a polarizing movie among people that yeah. I feel. I feel like if I saw it now for the first time, I might not like it. Just what based if you saw off it, of... But what if you saw it now for the fifth... You know, what if you saw it <laughs> starting now and then watching it five more times? Oh, no, because I've seen it so many times that I... Like, I, I watched it recently with a, a friend of mine um, for his birthday. And it's just like... And he's a sci-fi guy. And, and so it was it was amazing then, too. 
but I, I think there's something about when I saw it. I don't know. Maybe if I could, I don't know. It's hard to tell. You can't really do it. It's a thought experiment. So <laughs> I would also say that I, there are, I think a handful of people I know, some writers, not exclusively writers who just swear by the fifth element. I think that's what you were alluding to David with like how polarizing it is. And that like, this is a movie that speaks to them on this really deep emotional level. And while I can appreciate that, I would definitely say that is not how I respond to the movie. And I sort of just look at them and I'm like, oh, that's great. Yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, like I was saying, this is interesting. And so just to provide a baseline moving forward, we all like the fifth element. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think Zach and I are the only ones here who have seen Lucy. So, Zach, what do you think of Lucy? Uh, honestly, I, I thought that was one of the worst movies I've seen all year. Um, I really really had a negative reaction to it. And at the end, I just, uh, I I looked over at my wife and we kind of just started laughing because it was so, and and you want to talk about how Luke Besson isn't heavy hand, like Luke Besson in this movie, it's like the opposite. He's so heavy handed on the telling, like he has national geographic stock footage, like, cut into the movie in between scenes like hey do you get what i'm trying to go for here (laughs) like you get like this is like evolution this is like what life means i was just shocked at how unintelligent like or unintellectual it was being when it was trying to trying to say something i feel like you can't try to be like this super intellectual movie uh, and be a superhero film based off of like a false premise. Like we only use 10% of our brain. Like uh, that's, that's incorrect one. And I don't know. (laughs) I I just really had a a pretty negative reaction to it. Um, And I think there was like no tension in the movie too, because so the movie is she basically becomes a superhero um, because she takes this like weapons grade crystal meth stuff that turns her brain into overdrive. And there's a, a like little slides in the movie. It's like that show what percent of her brain that she's moving like title cards. Right. And Right. As soon as she gets to 20 percent, to me, there was no more tension in that movie because she could solve any problem with because she was like God tier. She could do anything. She could manipulate atoms or she could shoot people. Uh, So there just wasn't any tension for me. Uh, So I couldn't enjoy it for its campiness because. um, Yeah, because it was trying to be intellectual. And then it was trying to be tense, and it couldn't do either of those. I really agree with you, Zach, about the ten people only use 10% of their brain things. I had a huge problem with the movie just because of that. Because I, I have a huge problem with movies that take as their premise things that people that are not true that people actually believe, right? Like, if nobody actually believed that, I, I would just be like, oh, it's like the mutations in the X-Men make you shoot fire out of your eyes or whatever. Like, it makes no sense, but I don't care. But if it, but when it's something that people actually believe and actually, like, say to me all the time, 
um, then it really bothers me when the movie uses it. It was interesting because I watched some interviews with Luc Besson and they're like, you know, this isn't true, right? And he's like, hey, I worked on this movie for nine years. You think I don't know it's not true? Of course it's not true. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but like how else? I mean, there's really no plausible way you're going to turn Scarlett Johansson into God in, in you well, know, then, minutes. Then make it d- – don't use this – he's like, all right, well, I know it's not true. Well, then make it about something else. Be, do, this, do the X-Men thing. Do another superhero thing. But don't – don't do it like yeah like you said it doesn't have to be this she's only uh, humans only use 10 percent of their brain and then she uses 20 percent and then a hundred percent or right but i i thought i mean i watched it a long time ago so i don't really remember how much i liked it at the time but i i sort of remember it aside from the the issue i just outlined i remember thinking it was sort of like an okay middling action movie so i i don't think i had the, as as negative a reaction to it as you did um, but how about, uh, Anthony or Aaron, you guys didn't see this movie. So did you, were you ever tempted to see this movie or was there a particular reason that you stayed away from it or anything? I think I was curious about it, but it was one of those movies that just sort of sat in the tear of like, oh, if I saw it pop up on Netflix or, or HBO and, and I mean, I, maybe it did even, and I don't know for sure, but it just wasn't, the concept was, I was definitely turned off by the concept. In fact, I think I actually remember listening to an episode of Geek's Guide where like you guys were at least pat in passing like furious about the idea which I, I agree with and so um i just thought it sounded very silly and so if it you know if if it had been easier to see i probably would have watched it at some point but it just was never a priority hmm. i don't remember ever even being aware of its existence i lived in the jungle at the time and it's fair to say that i was not really plugged into pop culture very much at that point in my life in, in 2014. Um, but just listening to you guys talk about it, um, I'm not surprised to hear some of these issues just because I think there, there are flashes of this in Valerian where, I mean, and there are a couple of lines of dialogue not to preempt what we're going to get into, but that were just so lead balloon. It was crazy. (laughs) It was like the lights might as well have gone up in the theater. Where, where it was just so disruptively clunky. And it was like, you know, uh, th- that political point that you just made is A, not very interesting, B, completely out of context, and C, so badly woven into your dialogue that it's just, it's almost funny. All right, yeah, we'll get to Florian in one second. I just want to make one more point about the people only use 10% of their brains thing. I think it would be kind of funny in one of these movies because it's like its, whole, its own genre now with like Limitless and like there's so many – I feel like there's so many movies like that, that take this stupid premise that if in one of them some character gets shot in the head and then you think he's dead, but then it turns out that the bullet passed through the 90% of your brain you don't use, so he's fine. <laughs> hey, uh, on Limitless though, that's actually – I think that's a legitimately pretty good movie. It, it has the same premise, but it's pretty good. Okay, I haven't seen it, so that's interesting. Uh, I would say that it's um, it's dumb, but it's enjoyable. And because it doesn't sort of underline that, pr- like keep going back to the premise, or it doesn't sort of insist upon you taking the premise seriously, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good time because you're just like, all right, I'm going to go with it. So is it, would you actually recommend it, or is it just kind of like, it's not that bad? I'm I'm in the, it's not that bad camp. I'm in the pretty, pretty highly recommend. Like, I give it like a four star. I say maybe. Oh, interesting. 
out of five, to be clear. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Not four out of four. <laughs> okay, good. At least we can no. agree on that. Um, all right, cool. So, yeah, so let's get into Valerian now. So, uh, so Aaron, what oh. did you think overall of Valerian and the City of Overall? Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Overall, I I think the best way I can summarize is to say that I liked it enough to wish that I liked it more, um, if that makes sense. I, I would give it like a solid three stars and a kind of an ache that I couldn't give it more than that. And I think that is just an aggregate of some really great scenes and some really bad scenes that combine into this movie that's pretty enjoyable. I, I saw it with my mum. She really liked it. Um, and we, yeah, I think, I think it's an enjoyable film. I think it's one of those films that's worth seeing in the theater. Um, and it's got just, it's just bursting with imagination. It's got tons of imagination and I really like that. I like that it's, it's exactly kind of what I like in that type of sci-fi movie. It's just a romp. It doesn't take itself too seriously. You, I mean, and, and some of these things that we've just said in, in association with the fifth element, I think are, are true here. Um, and for the most part, it avoided some of that heavy handed moralizing that I referred to before. Um, even though I think some of the most imaginative scenes and the most fun scenes actually didn't have anything to do with or not very much to do with the central story. Um, I didn't mind that so much because they were just a lot of fun to watch. So a little bit, maybe a little bit like the, the most Eisley Cantina scene in Star Wars. Although that one actually does have quite a bit to do with the plot. What's really the standout parts of that scene are the sort of texture that they provide. It's the costumes and the creatures and the music and all the ambiance that goes with that. And I think this movie did that really, really well. And especially with sci-fi having been so mainstream for so long, it's kind of tough to to introduce something new and something different. And I think that that this did this pretty well. So there were things, yeah, things that I really, really liked, things that I really didn't like, and they kind of met somewhere in the middle overall. That's interesting. Let me just say for people who haven't actually watched this movie, so it's about two, it's far in the future, and there's two secret agents, and they're trying to solve a mystery on a space station on which lots of different alien species coexist peacefully. And it's based on a French comic book series from, that started in 1967 and ran until pretty recently. And it has a budget of about $200 million, making it the most expensive independent movie ever made. Uh, it was not a big studio movie. Luc Besson basically had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted in the movie. And it had something like 2,500 special effects shots, uh, which is 10 times more than The Fifth Element. Um, and so that's a lot of special effects. So, uh, <laughs> Anthony, uh, what did you think overall of the movie? Yeah, I, I also had like very kind of that there were things about it that I loved and things about it that I hated. Um, and, and certainly I thought imagination and, and like was, was definitely, you know, a great word for it because it is, I think there are a lot of really, it's not a rigorous movie, but it's, it's a movie that has a lot of really interesting science fictional ideas, like the, the marketplace, which sort of exists in two different dimensions, I thought, um, was just like really cool to look at and really fun to think about. Even if I thought the execution, I thought they kind of broke their own rules a couple of times. 
Um, but there's a lot of stuff like that, where it's just, and even so, you know, it's, it's, I think something a, a lot of film critics will sometimes say is like, this would make a great silent movie. Um, and <laughs> I think this, that's true of this movie more than almost any other, because it is gorgeous. There's always something interesting to look at. And occasionally the, the dialogue is just excruciatingly bad. Not so bad. It's good. Just like you want to like anytime that, um, Valerian and his partner, uh, shoot, I'm forgetting her name, Laureline. Yeah, and Laureline are quote unquote flirting. Like I wanted to Agreed. get up and leave the theater. It was so bad. The it felt worst. it felt like someone who had never flirted with another human being before, and it was <laughs> like terrible. And that like coexisted in this movie with this incredibly, incredibly beautiful stuff. Yeah, that's interesting, Anthony. Because in comparison to the Fifth Element, I think that the Fifth Element, if you don't like it, you probably don't like it because you find it whack, too wacky and annoying. Whereas I feel like this movie, if you don't like it, it's probably because you find it too boring and predictable. And I think that's a really interesting marked difference between the two movies. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And I think also that ties into one of the things Aaron said, which is oftentimes the things I was most interested in were the things that had nothing to do with the main plot. And it was like, let's just go hang out in this marketplace or let's go, you know, uh, rescue Laureline from these other, you know, aliens um, on the city, even though they really don't have anything else to do with it, the main plot. Um, and let's just have Ethan Hawke and Rihanna like show up for a while. And like that stuff was all great. And then when it kind of then slid back into let's like figure out what this mysterious zone on this planet is, the, my interest, you know, diminished considerably. I do agree with you though about the marketplace. I thought that whole sequence was fucking awesome. And I think the movie is worth seeing mm-hmm. just for that. Although like you, I had mm-hmm. problems with a lot of the other stuff, but that was. That was basically perfect, that whole sequence, as far as I'm concerned. I, I would say that this is slightly spoilery, but I would say, like, one reservation I had with the market scene was that my understanding was that, you know, that Valerian is only supposed to be able to interact with this other dimension with the part of him that's in this, you know, weird device that's, like, moved him into this other dimension. And at times it seemed like that the, the how those two dimensions could interact was done in this kind of fuzzy way that made me think it hadn't been completely like wasn't like didn't quite have that like rigor that i was talking about he was like sprayed with something that it seemed like maybe that kind of made the fuzziness a little bit easier for me to kind of look past Mm. like on rules like they i felt like that guy sprayed him with something right and then he was like kind of in and out or no did Right, because there's that mo- a cloaking yeah. device, like a cloaking spray, so that nobody else could see his hologram. Okay, right. that might. But but I don't know because because it wasn't explained, and, and I personally am cool with that. I, I don't need you know sort of similar to the the discussion we had about the black stuff or the whatever it was beating down Gary Oldman's brow. I kind of don't care. Um, mm. In in that small stuff, I, I I'm I'm letting myself kind of get swept away in it. And, and I really did, I mean, I agree with you, Dave, it's one of the best scenes, just, just the imagination of it. And, and for people who haven't seen it, maybe to explain a little bit, um, the concept is it's sort of like, um, if you've been to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul or, or a Sook, it's this, this big marketplace, open air marketplace, except the kicker is that it only exists in another dimension. So you have a bunch of tourists showing up in sort of school bus looking spaceships, which I thought was hilarious with the, with the cheesy tour guides and the whole thing at this marketplace, but they need virtual reality. They need VR equipment to actually experience it. And so you get these 
weird juxtapositions of seeing all these people kind of wandering aimlessly in this empty desert space. But what they're seeing is, yeah, it looks like the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. It's just, and it's full of junk that makes no sense. Um, and yeah, I just, it was a really imaginative scene and they didn't explain the rules very well. Um, but I was kind of cool with it because I almost in those types of situations prefer when they don't explain the rules very well, because then you don't know if they broke them or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, and we should say that they have these special boxes that allow you to transport things, things from the other dimension into our world. And you can only, that's the only way things can pass from one reality into the others with these, through these special high tech boxes. That is one thing I was glad they were explaining because I kind of leaned over and whispered to my mom, I'm like, how do they get things out when they buy them? <laughs> <laughs> and they did explain that at the end. It passes through what I'm pretty sure is a repurposed airport scanner. <laughs> that is what it looked like. Uh, yeah. And yeah, you put it through the, the scanner and it comes out in your dimension, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I guess we, so, so Zach, I just want to give you a chance to say, before I get too much into the details, just over, do you agree with what everyone else is saying about the movie or did you have some different opinion? Um, I'm pretty close to where you guys are at. I, I wanted to love the movie. That's, that's kind of how I would approach it is I, I wanted to love this and I had pretty low expectations because I watched Lucy the night before I saw it. Um, but, but I would say that, this movie still didn't quite do it for me. It didn't quite reach where I wanted it to, to go. Well, right. I mean, Aaron was talking about how the the flirting falls flat. I completely agree with that. But like, even like, I mean, it, the characters and the dialogue and everything just feels like a Saturday morning cartoon for 12 year olds to me. It, and yeah, it does. Well, and they already made that. There was a Valerian and Loreline anime for children. But like, so. <laughs> but like, like one thing that really jumped out at me early on is okay. So they we had the um the scene we were just talking about at the virtual reality dimensional bazaar, which I loved, and then all of their commandos die in the course of this operation, and Valerian had not bothered to read his briefing ahead of time, and they don't show any kind of emotional impact for having gotten all these guys killed. And, they don't even ask what happened to them. Yeah, and Loreline is complaining about how. This her dress got messed up uh, as a result of this op gone wrong, and it just it just it's just like a cartoon. Like I'm saying, it's just like a cartoon. There's no like seriousness to the characters in a scene like that at all. Yeah, I agree. Although I would say that it's not just the uh, it's just not it's not just cartoonish, but I think that's a problem in a lot of like modern like Hollywood blockbusters now, right? Where it's just like massive destruction and then no one seems like super bummed out about it it's not exactly the same thing here but it was similar to me where it just like the only like the heroes just didn't seem particularly heroic or seem to care at all about any other people except for their own incredibly painful you know uh relationship yeah and yeah and it was so so painful um i, I mean i think i I, have, I feel like i have so much to say on this but just just in general, to go back to the thing about the cartoon, I actually felt at many points watching this movie that it would have been a better TV series. And for so many reasons, um, one of which is that the story, and I think we, we talked about these scenes that, that are really fun that don't actually have anything to do with the plot. There are lots of them. And one of the reasons that there are lots of them is because the story is not big enough to fit the runtime. 
um, or at least the story isn't developed enough to fit into the runtime. And so they have all this kind of filler. And it made me think that if you did it in an episodic way, and there were a lot where well, there was a lot about it that reminded me of Star Trek, but that if you did it in this episodic way and and you could sort of have all of these fun bits of imagination unfold bit by bit as opposed to sort of thick and fast the way it does in the film with all these different races and all these different uh, sort of concepts. And you just had a small bit of story. And then the relationships, including the very painful relationship between our two protagonists who are, we are told in love, but show no sign of being in love whatsoever. Um, if that could sort of unfold more organically, I think, it, you know, and, and a little bit more in dribs and drabs as opposed to trying to jam it all into two hours or whatever the runtime was, it felt too long. But whatever the runtime was, it just, I just think it would have actually worked really well as a TV show were it not prohibitively expensive, I would imagine. I think it was 2.15 and felt a lot longer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let me just give a little structural analysis of this movie, because you basically have the first section is their op gone wrong and the immediate aftermath of that. And then the final third is kind of wrapping up that story with the politics on the um, base. And then the middle section has nothing to do whatsoever with either the first third or the final third. Yeah. Does everyone, yeah. does anyone disagree with that? Uh, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's and, fair. And the middle third is by and large the best part. Um, oh. other than, in my opinion, actually the best. The the two I'm just gonna betray my my favorites. The two scenes that I liked the best. I loved the first five minutes. Yes. Uh, uh, to you know David Bowie's space oddity, and they've got this space station, and it's sort of doing the slow build up of where we start in 2020, and then we go to 2030, and by the time we're done, we're in I can't remember what the time is uh, for for when it's set, but far far future, but where all of these different countries are pitching up at the space station. And it starts with China, then it goes to India, and it gets progressively less obvious until we end up with, I don't know who, this is really frustrating. I would like to see that scene again, and maybe very slowly, because you don't get enough time with each of the the people to know who they are. I think they ended with Mongolians. Anyway, it was I love that scene. That was my favorite scene. And my second favorite scene, for no reason other than the visuals were awesome, was when Laureline has been kidnapped by the, I don't remember what they're called, but that big bulbous kind of hammerhead shark headed race. And there's the one that keeps trying on the dresses. The faces that alien makes when she's showing Laureline the dress, like you like this one, you like this one. I completely loved that scene. Uh, Zach, what'd you think of the, the troll, the hammerhead shark troll people? I, I thought they were okay. I mean, I <laughs> didn't, I don't know. That scene, it just seemed <laughs> like, uh, I don't like the, the whole belch humor or it just felt like, yeah, it's like, like someone was farting type humor. Like, uh, I don't know. I think it doesn't, it doesn't translate well to me. Like think, I don't know if it's a French thing, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, uh, I didn't, that wasn't my, uh, that wasn't my favorite part. I, I did love the the first five minutes I thought was pretty amazing. 
but then it but just pretty much all downhill from there. I did like the moment, Zach, where you realized that the giant lemon she's holding is not the food. <laughs> <laughs> I I did like that actually, and I like how the hat was like a dish, and her and and the, the little thing is like, oh, he's gonna eat her brains. Like that's cool. I like that. So in my own defense, it's not the whole scene that I like. It's just the faces that the monster makes when she's trying on the dresses. She okay, yeah. <laughs> it's it's really weird in the comic that it's based off of that whole that whole bit is switched. So the whole, well, Loreline is actually um, with the shapeshifter, and it's a bunch of, they've shapeshifted into a bunch of, like, Greek god men. I was like, oh, it's kind of very Hollywood to to change it like that. Well, actually, let's talk about the comic, because I read the first, it's a hardcover, like the collected Valerian Volume 1, and it was four stories. Uh, the fourth of which was called Empire of a Thousand Planets, which, as I told you guys, I was sort of imagining was what this movie was based on, but it bears mm. virtually no resemblance to that um, issue. And nothing, none of the four that I read really bore any resemblance to this at all. So, Zach, you, you've read more of the comics? Yes, it's based off of Ambassador of the Shadows. And it's you can definitely tell it's based off of it. Uh, like, there's not... Um, there's not the the discount avatar people, but there is the mystery of like what's at the center, and there's a, a they're escorting um, the a, a, an ambassador, not you know a, a five star general guy, and they get separated. So th- it's it's very similar to the the middle section of the movie, um, but. But I, you know, I, I liked it. Um, I liked the comic. Thought it was pretty fun. Can I ask a question, Zach, about the comic? Um, mm-hmm. So, so Dave, when you when you sent a link and said it's based off this comic, I looked at it on Amazon, and then I looked it up on Wikipedia, and just sort of tried to get a sense of what the comic books were. And everywhere I looked, the comic book series was referred to as Valerian and Laureline. Uh, and it's- so. My question is, on the covers of the comics you were reading, what was the series called? Was it called Valerian and Laureline, or was it just called Valerian? I believe the comic is called Valerian and Laureline. However, I purchase my comics on Comixology most of the time, and that is just under Valerian. Hmm. Uh, but the covers okay. say Valerian and Loreline, and uh, then they'll say, like, The Living Weapons or Ambassador of the Shadows in, in really big letters. Right. So you can probably see where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, it's much more, like, she's always saving his ass in the comic. Like, it, it's, I don't know. Well, and it's, what's it's, weird about it is, like, in the movie, she's, she is, too. She's... She gets her screen time. She has her agency. There's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with the portrayal of, of that relationship. I just find it funny that she gets excised from the titles, I guess, so we can get this Harry Potter-esque kind of title. But I, I really don't get it, not least because Laureline is a way better character than Valerian. Yeah, I agree with that, that I would much rather spend time with Laureline than Valerian. For sure, it's the same way in the comics because she's like the smart one, and he's like kind of the doofy one. 
or at least in the ones that I've read, they they change because I grabbed like different ones from different eras because this has been going on for like I mean I guess it's fifty years old and so it went for forty years. They stopped doing them in twenty ten, um, but the early ones they. They, I guess they read a little bit different. Uh, the newer ones, it's kind of they, uh, the artist and the writer got more into a, I guess they evolved and hmm. the, those stories are more about like, they're all, all of them are pulpy, but generally, Dave, wouldn't you say that she's kind of saving him most, almost all the time? Well, as I said, I only read the first four. And they did not strike me as anything special, to be honest. I mean, it was it struck me as sort of 1930s style pulp science fiction in the, you know, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, John Carter kind of mold. Um, so um, I've, uh, my understanding is that they get more interesting and progressive and groundbreaking as you go into the series. But that was not evident, I didn't think, in the, uh, the hardcover hmm. that I read. I I agree. I read those first two. For for me, it was like the City of Shifting Waters and Empire of a Thousand Planets. And those, I mean, they were fun for what they were. But um, the panels are uh, just covered in text. And it's all text that doesn't need to be there. It's all like describing the art or something like that. So it's like, but once once he lets the artist do more of the storytelling, they read much faster and they're much funner. I was reading um, one of them while I was working out and I was just like, kind of like I had this big old smile because it was funnier. It was like more comedic than, and each one kind of reads differently. One of them was much more of a comedy. And then one of them read like a, let me see, which one was this? It was um, on the frontiers and it read like an Ian Fleming book. And even the main bad guy was kind of like a double O agent. He was like a time agent, but he played bridge just like the guy in um, Moonraker or the book anyways. And they're in Moscow and they're doing, and it takes place like in the seventies or eighties on earth. There's there's much more time travel. There's, I mean, it's all about time travel in the, um, the comic because they're time travel space agents. It's it's interesting. What I was reading on Wikipedia about the uh, the creators of the comics is that uh, they were characterized in particular. Um, the guy who does the stories was and I've forgotten his name was was characterized as being right. Uh, of the of very strongly of the liberal humanist tradition and the feminist and and, and naturalist and the, you know lots of isms coming through there um, and and I I do kind of find it funny that you know if if feminism is one of his jams that that his female fifty uh, percent got cut out of the title but but it does I think I mean the those traditions definitely come through in the story and it made me wonder. This is why I was, I was particularly interested listening to you guys talk about Lucy um, and sort of the clunkier moralizing elements, um, because, I mean, that was definitely one of my bigger, aside from, well, I mean, we, we can get into the, the bigger story arc, which is by far the weakest part of the film, other than the relationship between Valerian and Laureline. 
um, just the most cliche, noble, savage, tired. <sighs> um, but the, the, um, idea of, I, I wondered to what extent what I'm trying to say is to what extent Luc Besson felt, um, compelled to obliged to try to translate some of those values or vision into the film, um, which results in some of the worst dialogue in the movie. Uh, and, and the one for me that was like that scratch on the record was something that Rihanna's character says about illegal immigrants. And I was like, did this just happen? This, this piece of dialogue, did this really just happen? Actually, I mean, I, I would like to talk about the whole Rihanna thing later, but, um, but there were a couple of moments where it almost looked like there were two or three points that somebody, I don't know who, wanted to work shoehorn into the script at all costs and did not spend a lot of time making it happen organically. And so it was so, I mean, in addition to being, I don't think there's ever a point where you can go off on a, on a discussion about illegal immigrants in our, in our current political environment without it being noticeable. But so little effort spared to trying to weave this into the story in a way that made any sense or added any value, just kind of jammed in there. And I wondered, is that a Luc Besson thing or is that him feeling like he wants to be faithful to some of the overarching uh, ideological um, colors of, of the source work? I mean, Anthony, I want to get you back in here. Do you have a, anything you want to respond to or there? Um, well, I guess one thing I wanted to touch on from a little bit earlier, I think, in terms of the discussion of the comics was I also did, um, I, I also, yeah, noticed that the, you know, that the title had been changed in that way, which I, I thought was not ideal. Um, and, and as we, I was watching the movie, though, I, the thing I wondered about the comic was also about their partnership and how, um, to what extent, like, that you were talking, exactly, you were talking about, you know, she, her rescuing him. And there is a little bit of that in the film, too. Um, not, not a lot. Uh, but I did wonder, uh, I guess in, in a sort of classic sort of, you know, partnership, you know, fictional partnership, usually the partners are complementary and opposites in some way, you know, the, the rule breaker and, you know, the one who like sticks by the book or the, you know, the brains and the muscle or what, you know, in some ways you understand why you need both of them and you get an, you know, obviously like when you do it too schematically, it's not great, but you get some sort of interesting dynamic there. And here it felt like mostly that they were the same, whether that was skill wise and personality wise. I mean, she was a little bit less of an asshole. She was slightly, she seemed slightly more competent than him, but there wasn't a big difference. And, and, and it didn't feel to me like, Oh, this is like a great partnership that I would want to see, you know, furthered in comics. If I was, re you know, that, that this should be a long lasting comic or, you know, a, you know, a aspirational movie series. It just felt like, Oh, like I don't really understand why these two characters are on you know, screen together for, for, for that long. Let me just say about the title, because I'm 100% sure the reason they changed the title is because Valerian and Laureline doesn't tell you what kind of movie it is. Like, that could be a romantic comedy. It could be, like, a gangster movie. Like, it could be anything. And I'm sure somebody said, we got to make it Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets so people know it's a science fiction movie because Americans don't know who Valerian and Laureline are. And if, like, we don't signal what kind of movie it is. But it's why like couldn't no it be Valerian and Laureline in the City of a Thousand Planets? I mean, uh, no? I, well, I don't I, I think it's just really long. It's a mouthful. I mean, like how a, about just the City of a Thousand Planets? Exactly. <laughs> Another solution. Yeah. 
I mean, that's Sorry, also, Dave, we that can't let them off the hook quite that easily. <laughs> Although too, that's also an interesting point because uh, I, I don't know if you guys remember, you know, a few years ago they had that movie come out, um, John Carter, and then they dropped, they deliberately dropped of Mars off the title because they didn't want it to seem too nerdy and science fictional. That didn't work out so well. And so in some ways they wanted to make sure they had sort of the epic science fictional stuff. I mean, they, I mean, it's different, you know, uh, Hollywood studios in this case, but um, but just that it's funny to see them, you know, somebody go in sort of the reverse direction of really fighting to make sure that people knew it was a, you know, big science fiction epic. I feel like they were going for a Harry Potter sci-fi title. I could yeah. be completely wrong I can see about that. that, but I, I yeah, I can definitely and, see I that. I mean, the the the, the co-stars too um, are quite young, and so I wonder if they were kind of going for that crowd. I feel like that's one of the big things that is kind of holding this movie back for me is the the actors and and separately i think that they're fine except i really like dane dehan like he i want him to do better i really love <laughs> chronicle um this is but not his role no it it's not <laughs> it's not and the way they interact together, it's worse than when they're apart. And it's not amazing when they're apart, but then when they're together, it's just like, it's like a, like high school musical level, you know, we like when they make out, it just, it's, it's kind of unsettling to me. <laughs> yeah. After um, seeing the movie last night, the, the people I went with, uh, we were all talking about who potentially we would have cast in the Valerian role um, and I don't know that there's a good answer, but it seemed like they definitely wanted to sort of Harrison Ford slash like, Channing you know, Tatum. Chris Pratt type. Um, and I don't love Chris Pratt, but like it, it was, that was what they were going for. And Dane DeHaan, he has like a, the most amazing face and I think has done decent work elsewhere. Like it's just the complete opposite of that. So it was like mystifying why he was in this movie. I, I want to blame it on casting and Luke Besson. I think it could be that Luke Besson is not great with younger or less experienced actors. Whereas like in the fifth element, I feel like we're always, I'm always going to be like looking, comparing this movie to the fifth element. Cause they're so similar. They're both based off of the same source material in many ways. Um, but if you look at the fifth element, they're veteran actors in their prime. And then in this movie, like the best actors are side character. Like Ethan Hawke is just a side character, and Ethan Hawke wins. He was. I would watch a movie like flamboyant just Ethan Hawke cowboy. Oh, it was that was. No, agree. Make a movie about that, and I will watch it. Like that was the Chris Tucker kind of of this movie, in a but you know much shorter part. Um, really good. And John Goodman too. What I think he, he was, was the. Great. Yes, Discount totally Jabba was. the Hutt. Absolutely, he was. Right? Yeah. Totally the Jabba the Hutt, yep. And then Luke Besson, did, did you notice that he quoted himself? Like, I thought, like, I thought that Dave would be really pissed at this because he does it, tw that I noticed. I'm sure if I watch this again, we could find more, but he quotes Taken in in that mo in that like he's like I don't know who you are but I will find you and I will kill you and he does it just the, and and lupus on road <laughs> taken and he does it with the the um, nice hat joke before they go into the bazaar 
which is the nice hat joke, like where the guy's like, give me the drugs or, or give me the cash in um, Fifth Element when... Um, yeah, the guy has the hat that looks like the empty corridor. That yeah, he and he's like, nice hat. Yeah. So I, see, I, didn't, I feel like I didn't sorry, notice that, but I would have hated it if I had noticed it. You, okay. <laughs> I think they they really needed like Bruce Willis, like but a younger, even younger than the Fifth Element. Like I understand why they wanted the the cast, the the two main characters, to be young, but but yeah, Dane DeHaan just he he I have liked him in pretty much everything else I've ever seen him in, but this is not his role. And that roguish charm, yeah. And P- Chris Pratt would be a good choice. Channing Tatum would be a good choice. But am I imagining things? Or could Laureline easily have been played by Emma Watson and you wouldn't notice? And I also don't feel like that's a coincidence. Hmm. I feel like you could just jam Hermione in there and it would be fine. Although I think partly that's because Emma Watson and Carola Delevingne, I think, are sort of starting to be slotted in some similar roles in in terms of like young adult adaptations and stuff. So, And they have slightly similar faces. But I could see that, sure. I want to pick up, sorry, on what uh, Aaron was saying about the like messages of uh, immigration and stuff like that in the movie. Um, like Anthony, did you? What did you do? Do you agree with that? Or do you I agreed with that? it. I mean, it was it was. I I hadn't commented on it earlier because it was so separate from the rest of the movie. I mean, with one exception where I think the the overall plot is maybe trying to tie into some of these broader ideas, but otherwise, like sometimes. I mean, the big one being the the, the uh, illegal immigration line where it just kind of comes out of nowhere and just kind of, like, lies there. And then, like, it seems like everyone just sort of agrees that we're not going to talk about it again. And so that one in particular, I thought, um, yeah, it just did nothing for me whatsoever. But because it was sort of over with fairly quickly, it, it, it didn't bother me. Um, I guess, like... There, there are, because the, the, the primary plot is maybe in some ways trying to deal with these broader questions of, you know, war and genocide. Um, but I don't necessarily think it has anything interesting to say about them. And so I think there are probably some moments that are meant to be sort of emotionally resonant, um, that, that really aren't. Um, and I would also say, like, parenthetically, like, one of the things that makes it tough for it to deal with some, the movie to deal with some of these issues and also took, I mean, I loved the, the sort of, you know, um, you know, the dress trying on and human sacrifice stuff too. But like one of the things that's, I think, a problem in this movie is that the depiction of the aliens in, uh, is, is a little bit, um, you know, sometimes it, it sort of ha- it clearly brings in this baggage of ideas about sort of like primitives and, you know, quote unquote, like, savagery and, and, and like, you know, fr- frankly, like racial stereotypes. And so I don't think that it's aggressive. It's not like Phantom Man- Menace level, but, when that's happening, it also makes it hard to take it very seriously when it wants to start having speeches about genocide. Well, it's interesting, Anthony, because I saw Luc Besson say that he had written a whole script for this, and then Avatar came out, and he's like, oh, i got to change this because they did basically what I was planning to do. Did, did he change it in well, any way? No, but that's the thing, is because it's – I don't know what it was like. It's still way too Avatar. Exactly like, they even look like Avatar creatures. Right, they have that sort of slightly like yeah, that like attenuated, very skinny kind of ethereal look. The the main aliens who were were then you know being saved by these white characters. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the noble savage thing. Can we stop? Can we just stop? And and it was interesting to to hear you guys again talking about the comics because I was trying to tell myself, look, 
If this is based on a comic that was written in 1967 or 1970-something, maybe I can forgive this narrative, although even even then I would have hoped that the director would have tweaked the, the, the story arc enough that we can get away from this innocent, beautiful, peaceful, primitive race in perfect harmony with nature that gets destroyed by the war-making military, blah, blah, blah. It's just... Yeah, that's the worst part of the movie, in but my opinion. He he did make he did update it a little bit because in the in the comic that the the novel or graphic novel that he's basing it around, it's it's a little worse. The it's a it's much more primitive and it looks much more primitive and it's I would think it'd be more offensive. But it's but it's thirty years old, right? Yeah, well, um, that one is n- maybe not as actually. Yeah, that's only volume six, so that one's pretty old. Yeah, that one's probably thirty or forty years old. So yeah. Well, I mean, as long as we're hitting the problematic stuff, uh, Aaron, you said you had something you wanted to say about Rihanna and. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and 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 Anthony made me think of it again when he was talking. The the illegal immigration line, you know, it's tough. I think a really a really good actor, a really good performance can help gloss over bad dialogue. And similarly, a bad performance can really turn up the volume on bad dialogue and make it stick out even more. And Rihanna, just the whole thing, just dear God. So the opening sequence where she does basically this burlesque performance, um, I was like, this is a great Rihanna cameo. And they should have left it as a great Rihanna cameo. It's too long. The dance sequence goes on for, for too long, in my opinion. But but it's good. It, it's well done. It's interesting. It's entertaining. And then we get Bubble. And it just goes <laughs> drastically wrong from there. And so Rihanna plays this shape-shifting character who starts out, she's, um, she's clearly a, a sex slave or somebody who's trafficked, an illegal immigrant. We're going to blur the lines a little bit on what this means who is being held by Ethan Hawke, who's a pimp, in a sort of burlesque house. And because she's a shapeshifter, she can give these amazing performances on stage. Um, and so she's enlisted by Valerian to help him break into uh, this other alien enclave because she can help him pass as one of these aliens because no humans are allowed in there. Because it would cause a major diplomatic incident, although apparently cutting off the head of their emperor is okie dokie. <laughs> but anyway, um, so so she's this shape-shifting alien, and her whole thing is just terrible, in my opinion. It's just that her dialogue is bad, so she's not got very much to work with here in her defense. And her death scene, spoiler alert, <laughs> too late... Her death scene is one of the worst things I've seen in movies in so long. I was actually convinced that it wasn't going to be real. And her, cause her whole thing was like, I'm a great performer and it means so much to her to be recognized as a great performer. I was just sure when they were walking away, she's going to be like, did you buy my performance? Because it was, yeah. it was just so a slap over the, the, face the top to the and bad. It made it was no just sense. So bad. It right. was so and, and- bad. Even like with the mechanics of that character, they just showed us mechanically how that character works, and then and you didn't even bother to explain why she died. And it's like that, that doesn't make sense how she died. It doesn't make sense. Like, oh, I must have died. 
Right. And that happens to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> she literally, you don't see Oops. her get hurt. And she's literally lying there. She's like, I must have been injured in the battle. What? Could she not at least have fallen on a pipe in the, in the, in the garbage or something? Cause they fall into a garbage dump a la Star Wars. I mean, there's just no reason for that to have been as bad as it was. It's like everybody fell asleep. It was like, you guys, it's 2.30 in the morning. We need to go home. Somebody wrap this. Right. It felt like giant flashing lights that said either we only have Rihanna for a certain number of days or we have no further plot thing for this character. And so we're going to shuffle them off stage, um, which, like, even if it had been equally perfunctory, um, but just, you know, not having her die in that way, I would have, I would have preferred. Um, I would also say, I mean, I thought Rihanna, I, I didn't mind the performance. I thought she was fine. You know, not a great actress, but, you know, a lot of like charisma. Um, the, the other thing that really bothered me though was there's this really insane, small, but like to me, like really crazy moment where, um, you know, she has, you know, like cycled through a bunch of transformations, um, la- you know, finishing on Laureline, which is presumably what, um, Valerian wants to see. And he says, no, 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 I have an offer for you, and I want to see the real you. And so she transforms into her natural state, which is this sort of translucent alien. And he said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And then she transforms into sexy Rihanna again. And I was like, what? That is so messed up that he, yeah. like, you know, that, like, the, well, real you, but, you know, hot. <laughs> real you, but hot human you. Yeah. Not real like, you, real you. Yeah, and he just, and, he, and then it was done in this way of, like, well, obviously, like, the alien you is disgusting, and I would never want to see that. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, I did not like that character design, so I had to <laughs> agree. That, like, it just looked, and the name, too, it, like, Bubble, and it just looks like a weird bubble. Like, <laughs> I couldn't blame him. <laughs> it was not the most imaginative it, of No, things. it was not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I want to get into my structural analysis of this story and why it doesn't work at all okay so there are basically in my opinion there are two stories that would would have been fine on their own uh there's the story about how valerian follows the rules and laureline is the one who convinces him that he shouldn't follow the rules given a sufficiently high stakes and an important situation and so then he chooses to give the um, the little um, hamster thing, whatever, to uh, the aliens. The uh, pearl pooping so, armadillo. Yeah. So he, he yeah, so he makes a choice at the end, at the climax of the story. He makes a choice between duty and doing the right thing or whatever, and that would be all right. Then right. there's also the story of Valerian's always hooking up with random chicks, and now he has to decide whether to commit to Laureline or not. And at the climax of the story, he makes the decision to commit to her. And that would be fine, too. But if that's going to be the climax, then in the story, he should be tempted somehow to not be um, faithful to Laureline. And maybe like all those chicks, you know, present themselves to him in the form of virtual reality or alien shapeshifter or whatever. I mean, that's kind of why I, I feel like the, mm-hmm. it, uh, the origin of the idea of the hot alien shapeshifter is she supposed to be like a tempter for Valerian and he has to choose between her and Laureline. But because so much happens, because there's basically two completely unrelated stories going on, there's only like 30% of both of them and neither of them ever build up any kind of emotional intensity by the climax. 
And you just have things that don't make any sense, like Valerian's like, no, I can't disobey my orders, when all we've seen him do through the entire movie is disobey his orders. He, and it he just punches. Make any sense at all. Yeah. Right. Totally. And, and he, he punches the, the general, and he's like, but I'm a soldier, and I can't disobey. It's like he's the five star <laughs> general. What do you mean? example of, 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 of showing and not telling, but also showing something different than you're telling or sorry, telling and not showing. And, and yeah, but, but Dave, I think there's a more fundamental problem than that. I agree with everything you've just said that these two things are not related, but also they're fundamentally at odds with one another. If the, if the conflict is duty versus passion in both cases, on the one side, you have Valerian, the dutiful, the committed, and on the other side, you have Valerian, the passionate, the capricious. You can't be both. Or if you are both, then it's not a conflict, and therefore it's not interesting. So the, the concept of Valerian who sleeps with everybody and can't really commit doesn't make sense to me alongside Valerian, the dutiful, who does maybe what he doesn't want to do because he knows it's what he's, he must do. So I... That character makes no sense to me. He just doesn't. And, and to the extent that he does make sense again, and I kind of give them a bit of a pass on this again, because the source material is older. It's also a bit tiresome of this guy who just needs to settle down with the right girl. Um, blah, blah. He doesn't actually walk the walk there. We don't actually see, as you've said, any of that temptation. We don't see any of that conflict. We're just told that it's there. Yeah, I think that's really good. Does it, um, Zach, you have anything you want to add about this? No, I, I agree. I, I feel like it was just they were telling that second part. You were saying like, well, is he going to be, is he going to hook up with her and be faithful to her? Or is he going to be with all these chicks? that's like not even in the movie other than them saying it is like, there's no moment where he's like kissing another girl or even really tempted, not even like when Rihanna's in it. So that's like something that they're kind of saying is a conflict, but it's not really a conflict. I think that, yeah, that main conflict is the, was he going to, is he going to, the, the duty to, is he going to be a soldier? Is he going to be, you know, go rogue, do the right thing, I guess, maybe. But even there, we see no hint of that before. And quite the contrary, they present him as the guy who doesn't read the memo, the guy who goes in half-cocked, who's overconfident. Like, they present him as this Han Solo rules be damned type at the beginning. And then at the end, out of the blue, at literally the climax of the scene, of the movie, he's supposedly all of a sudden this this guy who's all about duty and it's going to be really tough for him to, to do the thing that, that is against the rules and he just don't buy it. I I was, I looked over because that diet, that part, like it, there's like a come to Jesus or there's a talk of love in that climax. And I noticed that like my body was really tense in the theater <laughs> And I look over to my friend, who's the same friend that for his birthday we saw um, um, The Fifth Element. I look over to him, and he's his hand is like 
kind of almost over his eyes like he's blocking rays from the sun, but he's still <laughs> looking up. <laughs> and, and then I'm just, I just look at him and then he looks at he looks over at me and we just started laughing because it was so bad. Like that part was comedically bad, like so bad that it's good. Right. And I think there's potentially a way to do a character arc where it's somebody who has a strong sense of duty, but doesn't care about, you know, the rules. Um, like, I mean, like, like as a Star Trek fan, I mean, I think, like, Captain Kirk, I don't think is a, always consistently characterized, but in general, as somebody who you believe, you know, cares about a ship, cares about the Federation, but occasionally will flout, you know, regulations. But, like, Valerian doesn't come across as someone with any sense of duty at all. Like, he doesn't seem to care about anything except for Laureline. Um, and so, you know, the, the like, and, and, you know, it's, it's very, like, you know, cavalier about loss of life, about, and, of course, about the rules. And so, you know, when she says, well, I want to just give this thing to the, um, to these aliens, you know, you, my assumption was, of course, he would go, go along with her because the only thing he's shown any interest in for the entire movie is her. They just needed conflict. I mean, Luke Basson was just like, oh, well, there's no conflict here. I, I'm just going to force it in. He's, he was not thinking. Like, he's not thinking of, like, an overall character arc. He's just like, oh, what will make this more tense? Right. Well, it's, it's a Hollywood cliche that the climax of the movie has a character declaring their love or love saves them or whatever. And I feel like that was just sort of, like, stuck, you know, shoehorned in, unconnected to anything else. I also just want to say I was – I'm really, like, one of my – Hollywood tropes that I hate the most is that the detective has to get kicked off the case in order to solve it. And that was the case here with Laura Lee. And it made no sense where they said, Oh, take her into custody. It just is stupid. And I also just want to mention the like insane over telegraphing that Clive Owen is the villain and that his oh my God. E- evil robots are going <laughs> to like go berserk at the end of the movie. Like not totally. only was it 100% clear from the first scene that that was, was going to happen, but then it felt like there were like eight or nine more shots just to, in case you didn't get it the first time, that this is the bad guy and these robots are going to go berserk at the end of the movie. Uh, it was just, like, so over the top. Right. And, well, the thing that what I didn't mind that they were like, hey, Clive Owen is a villain. We're going to show you that he's a villain because he's, you know, straight up torturing these aliens that we've seen sympathetically earlier. But then the part that was confusing was that at the end, then they would do this reveal um, – as if we were supposed to be surprised. And then you're like, no, I knew. We we all got that. You didn't have to that. explain it. We we totally got it. Um, Thank you for bringing that up. You, you can do one or the other, but when the you do them Scooby-Doo both, it doesn't ending. make any sense. The Scooby-Doo ending only works if the audience is a little bit still a few steps behind. Right. The, the purpose of the Scooby-Doo ending is to explain what happened. But we already saw what happened, so we're okay. Right. There's also the amazing moment where Valerian is confronting him and he says, but you knew that there was advanced life on this planet and they cut to the flashback and like somebody's saying, there's advanced life on this planet. And you're just like, oh, come on. That was another part where we both just laughed because it's so, it, it's like, no, you know, this dude's bad. No, he's a bad guy. Look at how bad he is. He even shoots this guy. In the face. <laughs> it's, just, it's so ridiculous. But you guys, it's a really fun movie. I think, I mean, th- and this is a really, again, why I thought it's a pity that this wasn't a television show. Because I think you do 
forgive some of this a little bit in a television show because it's not that you forgive big plot holes or, or bad dialogue or anything like that, but I guess with television shows, they maybe feel a little bit less compelled to reach for these big themes sometimes, or if they do, they, they reach for them only for a couple of seconds because, because the show's only an hour long. I don't know. I, I just feel like it would have been less egregious as a television show, and also they would have time to hit their stride a little bit. Well, I think they missed a huge opportunity to put the awesome, 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 bizarre scene at the end of the movie, right? Yeah. You don't put the most awesome thing in the movie at the beginning and then have the most kind of unremarkable cliche thing at the end, because then it just deflates the whole thing like a balloon, right? But if they yeah, had the kind of like cliche stuff with the gate and the evil commander and the soldiers facing off against the robots. If that had been at the beginning and then the awesome interdimensional marketplace where they're trying to get the thing back had been and then the more end. Of that. And yeah, then more and John Goodman was way better than Clive Owen too. So, <laughs> I mean, that would have worked too. Also that, and that tour guide who had a whole kind of Sasha Baron Cohen thing going on, I don't know who he was. But he was great. I would have liked to see more of him. I would have liked to see him whip out a weapon a la Pregnant Lady and Snowpiercer and just start wasting people. <laughs> that would have yeah. been completely awesome. <laughs> Maybe yep. out of that big, that big, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rasta kind of thing he's got on his head. Maybe that would be a good place to store a weapon. Yeah, what I really want is I think we just, we should just have an anthology series set at the marketplace. Valerian and Laureline can be in one episode. That's fine. It probably won't be one of the better episodes, but that's okay. But like, let's just really, the marketplace. Oh, this is a great idea, Anthony. Who will edit this volume? <laughs> Who will step forward? Right. If only someone on this podcast knew a high-profile <laughs> science fiction anthology editor. <laughs> that's true. Are you talking about Zach Chapman with his time travel? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. It's, time, it's, yeah, on, it's on you, tells. Zach. <laughs> I was going to say that this movie, I actually think it's it's kind of like the ultimate movie that you would put on on mute at a party because <laughs> it's just so it's just so crazy and it makes so little sense that well one all, all the dialogue makes this movie worse um yes. except for when it's Luke Besson's greatest hits but then it's just him copying himself but I would say yeah, have it on mute, and you can you can just enjoy it for its pieces, and you're not going to get like sucked into it. Like if I had um, Fifth Element, I feel like people would actually be sitting down and wanting to watch it. But I would just put it on the screen, and people would still continue conversations and look up. Oh, oh that's kind of cool, and continue conversations because it's it's pretty. Well, right. I, I want to go back to what. Erin was saying that she wishes that she liked this enough to wish that she liked it more. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm glad I saw this movie. I would encourage pretty much any science fiction fan to go see it. You know, I mean, it's just so, as you can tell, it's just so frustrating. I didn't hate it. You know, it's just so frustrating because they spent $200 million on this amazing, amazing, amazing world. And then the just easy stuff is, is totally broken. And it's just baffling to me. Like, why... Why would you put so much effort into these such hard things and not have just like a base, your basic like 
engine and four wheels and stuff in place underneath that. Right. Well, it's a little, I felt a little torn because the things I like about the movie are because, um, it does feel like it is very much Luc Besson's vision. And, and so like, I mean, I, the easy solution to me is like, well, clearly he should have just hired another writer. Um, but like, I wonder like, oh, does that make it sort of more of like a standard sort of formulaic movie? But then I think, Clearly, Luc Besson, the screenwriter, wasn't bringing his A-game to this movie um, the way that Luc Besson, the director, was. So really, yes, he should have just hired another writer, I think. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine something more formulaic than what he came up with in terms of, like, the the, the plot. I, I think I might have already said this before, so apologies if I'm repeating <laughs> myself. But the central story is the least interesting thing about this movie by far, except... For In fact, maybe the relationship between Valerian and Laureline is more interesting to the extent that it just sucks so hard. But, <laughs> but, the, but the, the central story is, is just so anodyne. It's just so, well, it's, in fact, that's not true at all. I, it, I, I really don't like, the, as I mentioned, the noble savage trope. But it's also, even you know, putting aside all of its problematic elements, it's also been done to death. So even if it weren't problematic, it's certainly boring. I just want to mention that I saw this movie in 4DX. (laughs) What does that mean? mean? Okay, so it means that there that the seats move around like you're on like a roller coaster. Like Star Tours. Yeah, yeah, and then they spray water at you. No, they don't. um, There's like air. So actually, so I actually like. I don't even like 3D particularly. Um, you know, someone else bought the tickets and I just went along. But I would actually recommend watching this movie in 4DX. I mean, I know there's like not that many people. <laughs> there's not that many theaters you could do it. But it's an experience. I mean, you know, like you when the um, at the beginning when the alien goes outside and then the giant flaming um, wreckage is flying overhead, all the wind is blowing. You can actually feel the wind blowing. And it was pretty hmm. cool. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but it was worth doing it one time. And I think this was just about the perfect movie to, to That's do That's interesting. It. Is it also 3D? It's also 3D, yeah. Uh. So so I didn't even know this was a thing. I once went to the movies in Rwanda. I went to see Pacific Rim in Kigali. This was during the period that I lived in the jungle, so this was a big deal. And uh, I went to see Pacific Rim, and I can't remember what the other film was, but it was playing in 5D, you guys. <laughs> and I'm just kicking myself that I did not go see this 5D film in Rwanda because really, what does it mean? <laughs> I, so I want to know. Is this 5D is better than 40X? I, ha- I don't even think it's a thing. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And if it exists somewhere, it's probably not in Kigali. But I, I really, I think this was a huge mistake on my part and I will never get that moment back. Okay, but Devil's Advocate, like nothing you, nothing that could, you could have experienced could possibly like match what you're probably thinking, imagining (laughs) when you think about 5D. 5D in Rwanda. I just want to point this out because, you know, well, anyways, sometimes the power doesn't turn on. (laughs) So just be very interesting. (laughs) This was going to be 5D, you guys, but as it turns out, the projector is broken. Have a nice day. <laughs> okay, so also one other thing I want to bring up is the last time that Anthony and Aaron were on the show together, Aaron was saying that The Expanse isn't the best show ever. I and knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> she, she subsequently messaged me to say that actually she liked season two, so I just wanted to publicly give her a chance to 
um, <laughs> admit recant. that she was wrong and I was right. What, would you like me to self-flagellate for a while? <laughs> that would be, yeah, we've got like about 10 minutes left. So, <laughs> I mean, you can, you're going to have to keep it to less than 10 minutes, but, you know, other I don't than that, have, like, go I don't on. have 10 minutes worth of material, but I like it a lot better. I liked season two a lot better than season one. It's still not perfect, but nothing is ever perfect. But I really liked it a lot better, and and I particularly liked that whereas in season one I thought they took a lot of predictable turns, in season two it felt like, and, and I should, uh, for those who weren't around for the last panel, I have not read the books, so everything is new to me on this. So I, I don't know to what extent this is true of the books as well, but there were moments where, and love it when this is done, where they skillfully lead you to believe they're going to go in a certain direction, and then they go, because that's just, you know, it's the way this, this musical phrase tends to resolve itself, but then it goes in a different direction, but oops, it's closer to what you thought than, than that. So I, I really enjoyed those, those twists and turns. Um, and by and large, really liked the new cast members. Do you want, do you want me to keep talking about how much I like the Expanse days? I know you can listen to this all day. Um, I mean, there are still certain things I but, don't like. Say like more about, about how you were wrong before, too, though. <laughs> I wasn't wrong, Dave. I still don't think season one is that great. <laughs> but I will say, you know, another thing that I that I highly recommend is turning on the closed captioning for those mumblers in the cast who can't seem to get their patois out in a way that is in any way comprehensible. It really helps to have the closed captioning on, and I would add that it particularly helps when you're watching it with somebody who tends to go, what did he just say? What did he <laughs> just say? Which is kind of hard on the viewing experience overall. But yeah, I, I like it. I don't, I, I, I like it a lot. It's one of my favorite shows right now. I, it's not perfect, and there are some characters that I hope crawl off in a dark space never to reemerge, but, uh, but in, in general, I really like it. The patois still bugs me, but, but that's Yeah, okay. I mean, I, 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 you know, like I, I've said, The Expanse is my favorite show right now because it is serious science fiction. There's so little of that in media. And I just wish that the same sort of scale and special effects amazingness of uh, Valerian, yeah. you know, could, could be applied not to a, a comic started in 1967 in the vein of a you know, story of science fiction from the 1930s, but from something that's really cutting edge, you know, mm -hmm. something like Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312 or like something, you know, something that has all these fresh new ideas and just amazing mind blowing concepts. And, um, I don't know yeah, how much, yeah. how long we would have to wait for that, but I, I really would like to see something like that. It would be nice. But, but this being said, I mean, as much as I, as I like The Expanse and I, and I want to watch movies like that. And I, my favorite science fiction movie, I think still in that vein might, might be, well, in that vein is even the wrong word. Serious, serious science fiction. Can I put it that way? I still really love Gattaca. Um, Gattaca is brilliant. I love that. Second. I completely love Gattaca. But, but I also like a, I, I like a good space romp. Um, and so I was, you know, I was pleased when that was back in fashion. One of my other favorite Dave, Dave. Just don't kill me. One of my other favorites <laughs> is Serenity. Um, I love I Serenity. I okay, love all right. A lot, a lot of serious science fiction people give me the hate face when Who I say that. Who doesn't like Serenity? Those people are. That's what I think. Dumb. It's super charming. <laughs> it's super charming, and and that's a great example of a film with a point that doesn't hammer you over the head with it. In my opinion, right? That um, is, and and that is both serious and fun. That they're not mutually exactly. exclusive. Exactly. 
Exactly. That they're not mutually exclusive. And right now, Chris Pratt seems to be the only one in these films. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Channing Tatum. I didn't like that. I didn't like that movie where he was the dog. I don't even remember what it's called. Jupiter Ascending. Yes. Uh huh. Didn't. This like reminds that. me a lot of Jupiter Ascending. I mean, it's better than Jupiter Ascending. I, I actually would argue that Jupiter Ascending is dumber but more fun. Hmm. I mean, and I mean, they're both really dumb. But like, I feel like <laughs> there were long stretches of. Of Valerian where I was bored, um, yes. and I was never bored in Jupiter Ascending. There are definitely times of like, why? Why? But like, <laughs> I was always like engaged. Well, no, but Jupiter Ascending and Valerian both feel to me like somebody had an enormous amount of money to make exactly what they wanted. And it just shows that being able to make exactly what you want isn't always a good thing. Yeah. Sort of like the Star Wars prequels or something, you right. know, like so sometimes, you know, a giant pile of money and total creative freedom is not a good thing. Yeah, I think like someone needs to stand, stand over them and say, hey, you know, this part is not good. This part needs to be rewritten. <laughs> it's definitely indulgent. But having said that the fifth element is like Wes Anderson in space, it's as close as it gets to Wes Anderson in space. But could we please have Wes Anderson in space? <laughs> I think that would make me the happiest ever. Grand Budapest Hotel in space sounds like about my happiest happy place. Yeah, that I sounds pretty mind-blowing. I, I want to watch that now. <laughs> and please, Ray Fiennes must be in it. I think yes. the other thing that's sort of in that, that scratches that itch was that... Um, fan trailer that somebody made for the X-Men directed by Wes Anderson. Um, not actually directed, but like the, the special effects are not great, but you should immediately go on YouTube and type in Wes Anderson X-Men, and I think you will enjoy it. Mm, sounds good. All right, so we're running pretty short of time here, and I did want to give Zach a chance to mention his new short story publication. So, Zach, take it away. Oh, cool. It's a, um, a weird West story. And uh, it's on Persistent Visions, and it's free for anyone to read. So I uh, hope you guys check it out. Say the title, Zach. Uh, oh, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> uh, sorry. SEO, think, Zach. Yeah, it's, it's Rick and the Green Gunslinger. <laughs> and is, the, is, when, when will, is it up now, or will it be up shortly? Or? Yeah, it's up now. And the sequel to it, is going to be out on Tales to Terrify sometime between now and the end of the year. I'm not sure. All right, cool. So, yeah, so Rick and the Green Gunslinger, everyone go check that out on Persistent Visions. And, yes, yeah, so we're pretty much out of time. So how about just the final thought from everybody? So, Aaron, final thought about what we've been talking about on this panel today. Go see it. Don't take it too literally. Don't take it too seriously. Try to, you know, squint through the bad parts because the good parts are worth it. Um, and although I didn't see it in 3D and I generally don't like live action films in 3D, this is one example where I thought probably I regret that decision. Interesting. How about Anthony? Final thought. Dave, well, I wanted to jump off one of the points you made about how, you know, sometimes people are just given complete control and complete resources and sometimes that's not a good idea. <laughs> I think that's true. But there's a part of me that just because, you know, the Hollywood system can be so dominant and so make things so, you know, anodyne, like, I'm glad that this movie exists despite those problems. And if you're the kind of person who, like, likes the idea of 
here's this big budget thing that's clearly somebody's vision. It's not great by any stretch of the imagination, but like just the, if you're the person who's just glad that that exists, like you should go see it. If you want like a coherent narrative, uh, if you care about plot and dialogue, you might and be characters. less satisfied. And characters, all of those <laughs> secondary things, maybe you won't enjoy it as much. Or I mean, somebody who I saw it with walked out and said, this is the worst movie I've ever seen, which I did not agree with, but I understand being very, very frustrated with it. I, I totally agree that I'm glad that this movie exists. I, I agree with that 100%. And I think everyone, every science fiction fan should watch it. Just be aware of you know, its problems. Yeah. Um, and Zach, last word. Cool. Well, I think that if you like movies like Transformers or Lucy or just any big budget action movie, go see it. If you're looking for something deep or, or if you tend to avoid Transformer like movies, I would probably just rent this. That way you can look at your phone through, uh, the, <laughs> the groaning dialogue and and other boring parts. All right, well, I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Anthony Ha, and Zach Chapman. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Anthony Ha, and Zach Chapman for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Carrie J. Duvall, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.